0: We're in the, um, the end of a series here on parables, and um, this week I picked up the poison chalice of uh, a parable that Jesus teaches, and I've just been slowly sipping on that all week, and uh, it's been working its way through me, and uh, it's not an easy parable, and it's one of the reasons that I picked it, because uh, you know often we don't try to touch any of the hard stuff or the difficult things, and if you hear last week, I picked another difficult parable last week, and this week is no different, and so this, this parable has confused many. It has, um, it has raised probably more questions than it has given answers, and so as we go through this morning, I just want to give a little, I guess, pastoral note that uh, if there's any questions that come up after this, I'd, I'd be very happy to talk to anybody. Uh, I'll be down the front, and uh, after the service is finished, please come see me, talk to me, ask me any questions, I can't promise that I'll have all the answers. And that is often the way that sometimes the parables that Jesus teaches have, is that we don't have all the answers, but we do have some of the answers that He's revealed in the Bible. And so um, I want to I just kind of throw it out there this morning as we go through this parable that it's going to be hard, it's going to be difficult some of the aspects of it, but there's also some amazing truths and some real encouragements here that I hope will uh, benefit you as well. I want to talk about decisions to start with. Uh, many of us, we, we, we make decisions every single day. Uh, you made a decision to come here, you made a decision to get up this morning to what you're going to eat for breakfast and and uh, how you were going to drive here this morning, what road you would take, and all those sorts of decisions, right? And they're just small decisions that we don't really think about or have to worry about, to be honest. But uh, then there's decisions in our life that we do worry about that take up a lot of our time and concern, and uh, sometimes we get overwhelmed with these decisions, pretty much from when you leave home, uh, which some of you have not done that yet, um, but there will be a time where that comes. If you're over 30, it's probably already past the due date. Uh, Some of these big questions, big decisions that we make are things like, where will you live? Will you stay in Toowoomba? Will you move somewhere else? And some of you have moved to Toowoomba from other places, and that was a big decision for you. You'll have to decide, what are you going to do for a living? Where will you work? What will you study? What kind of time will you have, And, and what will you devote your energies to with that time? A big decision that many of us have made over the years is who will we marry and that comes with all sorts of lifelong consequences right Um, most of them positive hopefully some of them harder but that is a massive decision that you can agonize over and it's it, it comes with a lot of weight behind it um some of you are towards the end of your life and you're starting to think about, should I retire? Can I retire? What will Where will I live if I retire? What will that look like? And these are big decisions that we make in our life and they have consequences as to how they are going to play out. Well, I want to say today that those decisions are important and you should think about them and consider them and be wise about them, but those decisions will pale in comparison to the decision that this parable will force you to make today if you haven't already. This parable calls for a decision that will not only impact your life now, but it will impact your eternity beyond this life. And so when eternity is at stake, the decision is more important than anything you could make that will only last until you die in this life. And so it's a little bit of a warning and it's also a little bit of a preview just to put your seatbelts on because Jesus is going to teach us something that has eternal weight today. And I just want to make an, uh, an agreement with you this morning that we will do our absolute best to be honest about what this says and what Jesus teaches in this parable. Even though it may be hard, even though it may be not always uh, completely revealing of every detail, we will be honest with what the text says. And so if you agree to that, I want to make that kind of arrangement this morning, that even though there could be some hard truths, we will do our best to honor what Jesus has taught in His Word parable comes from Luke 16 verse 19. It begins and it carries on basically from where we left off last week. And if you were here last week, you will remember Tom mentioned a little bit just previously that there was the parable of the shrewd manager. And if you weren't here last week, let me give you the very quick summarized recap. And that was that there was a man who used his wealth to gain friends and favours in his life so that when he lost his job, he had somewhere to stay. And he used wisdom and foresight to look into the future, see what was coming down the road, and use his finances accordingly. And Jesus says we should be like that with the view of eternal life and that we should use our finances and our wealth to sow into an eternal kingdom that is to come. And we finished... ...with this verse where, that Jesus says that you, can, you cannot have two masters. You can only love God, not love God and money. Or you can choose to love money and not love God. And that's kind of where we left things. And that parable was the positive side of what you do if you love God and not money. You use your money to build into an eternal kingdom... Now he's going to go to a parable, which is the negative side of that. If you were to love money and not love God and use your money, not for an eternal kingdom, but for a temporal kingdom of your own in this life. So this is the negative of what was positive last week. And what we're going to see in this parable is you have two lives, you have two destinies and you have two requests. So, let's work our way through this parable. The first thing we see is the two lives, starting in verse 19. It says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. Oh, by the way, I'm reading out of the ESV this morning, which is different to normal, but there's just a few translations in the ESV that I prefer. and I'll I'll talk through why that is in a sec. ESV. So, we have our first... Character. He's just known as the rich man. He's, he is uh, described here in verse 1, and we know quite a bit about him actually just from this verse. Firstly, he's, he used to dress in purple. Purple was the color of royalty, it was very expensive. You wanted to get purple dye back then, you had to wait until a certain seashell mollusk would, would wash up on shore. You would crush that, and out of one shell, you would get one drop of purple dye. And then you would be able to use that purple dye to make purple linen, right? And so it was very hard to come by and it was very expensive. At the time of this story, the, the price of purple linen is the same price as gold, right? And this rich man wore purple. On the outside and it says that he wore fine linen that would be talking about his undergarments all right so he's wearing this fine linen which is probably egyptian cotton from down there which is where the best came from right he's not wearing big w bonds undies he's got the kelvin klein silk egyptian cotton combo the best you can get and that is what he would wear underneath and so underneath he's got the best out on Uh, outside his garments. He's got the best so that everybody can see he is a wealthy man. The other thing it says is that he feasted sumptuously every day. And uh, this means that he just had parties every single day. And he had the best food, the best wine, and every single day he feasted. This means he never worked. He was independently wealthy. Never had to go to work. He just partied and feasted every day. Every day he wore purple. He was a very, very rich man. Now we're introduced to the second character. And the second character is named. He actually has a name. And this is the only time in any of Jesus' parables that a character is given a name. All his other characters uh, have got this anonymity, anonymity to them it's a farmer who sows a seed, it's a Samaritan who comes by the, dead, uh, the, the half-dead Jew, it is uh, birds that come along, it's, it's all these people, it's a woman looking for a coin, it's a father who has a son, it's always, it never has names for the character. But here, this is the only place that a parable is given Uh, A character in a parable is given a name. Now, some have come to say that this is because it's a true story. And this shows that this actually happened and Jesus is actually recounting a true story. I don't think that's the case. And I'll tell you why in a sec. I think Lazarus is named for a purpose that we're going to see. Now, just because it isn't a true story, as all parables are, not doesn't mean that this isn't a reality that takes place. Because just like all the other parables, although they might not be true stories that happen, they're all based on true realities. For instance, the Good Samaritan, there is a road that runs down from Jerusalem down to Jericho that people would take. There is such a thing as a priest that came along that road. There is such a thing as a Levite. There is such a thing as a Good Samaritan. There is such a thing as a farmer. There is such a thing as sowing seed. All those sorts of things are true. They're based on reality. So even though this may not be a true story that some people would teach it that way, I still think that it is based on reality. So Lazarus, let's read about him verse 20. It says And at his gate, that's the rich man's gate, was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Notice he's, he's laid at the rich man's gate. Two things here. Obviously, the rich man is very rich because he has his own gate. And if he has his own gate, he's probably got a mansion or a palace. They were the only things that would have gates in those days out the front of the residence. He's laid there. Somebody actually put him there. He could not physically get himself to this gate, likely because of the sores. These aren't scratches or little scabs. These are These are putrefying, pus-filled, overflowing sores, right? To the point that this man cannot walk. He cannot move himself around. Somebody put him at the gate. And it says that he desired to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table. And if this rich man is feasting sumptuously every day, he's not doing that outside the gate. He would be doing that at his table in his mansion with his friends so it seems as though this uh, this man Lazarus is waiting outside the gate for the garbage that would come out the rubbish from the rich man's parties that would be thrown out to the curb to be collected and he longs for it just hoping he might get a crumb of the garbage And then lastly, it says that while he's there, dogs come and lick his sores. And these are not manicured French poodles. These are hounds, undomesticated mongrels. You could not find two more opposing lives in Jesus' parable here, between the rich man and Lazarus. They are completely opposite in their lives so that's the two lives now we're going to have two destinies verse 22 the poor man died and was carried by the angels to abraham's side some of your translations may say abraham's bosom notice there's no mention of a burial but as soon as he dies he is physically looked after by God's angels. And he's taken to Abraham's side, Abraham's bosom. And if you grew up in church like I did, you might remember the song, Rock of My Soul in the Bosom of Abraham. Anyone remember that? Yeah, yeah. Great song, you know, used to sing it as a kid, had no idea what it meant, right? What the heck is Abraham's bosom, and do I really even want to be there? That doesn't sound like a great place to be. But the idea of being in one's bosom comes from what they would do when they would feast. And uh, the way that they would feast is you would lie on your left side and you would eat with your right hand, because everyone who's normal uses a right hand, right? And uh, any lefties in the building? Uh, all right, yeah, yeah. Maybe don't stay too long. Um and when and when you would do that, you would lie slightly in front of the the next person, right? And it would look as though or it would seem as though you were sort of in their lap in a way. And and John picks this up in his gospel where he says at the at the last supper, the last feast, he is in the bosom of Jesus. And so it has this idea of being very closely associated physically right next to somebody as you would feast with them. And this is where Lazarus finds himself. Then we turn to the rich man and his destiny. The rich man also died and was buried. Notice he has a burial. He would likely have the money and would have organized it before his death. Verse 23 And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. The rich man suffers the same earthly fate as the poor man. Defi- despite his wealth and his splendor and his prestige and his ability to afford whatever he wanted, he still suffers the same fate death. But from that point on, their lives change. He finds himself in a place called Hades, the text tells us, in torment. Now, what and where is Hades? It's a little bit difficult and there's probably not enough time to go into it completely, so just just stick with me for the moment as I try to explain a little bit of what the Scriptures talk about when it comes to Hades. In the Old Testament, when people would die, it would talk about them going down to Sheol. You might have heard of Sheol, S-H-E-O-L. And this seems to be the Old Testament understanding of where people would end up, a place called Sheol. And within Sheol... There seems to be two compartments or two parts to Sheol. And one part is called Hades. And the Old Testament wicked people would die and go to Hades. And then there was another compartment. Some people call this paradise. I'm not so sure about that. Um, Where the Old Testament saints would go. And when it talks about the Old Testament saints dying often it would, it would say uh, after they died that they would go to be with their fathers rather than go down to Sheol. But they would describe it as going to be with their fathers, right? And so there was this understanding that you would go and be with the forefathers of the faith, of those who had anticipated the Christ to come and had put their faith in Yahweh. And so it seems that there are two compartments to Sheol. There is Hades, and there is those who are with the fathers. Now, the father of the Jewish faith of Judaism is Abraham, right? He is known as the father of their faith. And so it's no coincidence or surprise that when Lazarus dies, he goes and he is in the bosom of Abraham. He is there with the father of the Jews, indicating that he is one of the righteous, now, that's not the only way you can explain it, but I think it's probably the most accurate based on what we have in the Old Testament and what happens in the New Testament. If you were to go to Ephesians 4.8, uh, it talks about Jesus after he has died and resurrected that he went and took those who were um, by Abraham's side and uh, took them into heaven, to the presence of God, quoting Psalm 68. And so the understanding is that Sheol still exists, but that compartment that we're about to read about or have with, with Lazarus is now empty. And Jesus has taken those to be with the Lord. Paul talks about to be uh, no longer in the body, is to be in the presence of the Lord. And so those who have saved and die now would go to be in heaven with Jesus. But Hades still seems to be um occupied and if you go to revelation 20 in fact let's just quickly turn there this won't be on the screen I'm making a snap call here <clears throat> this is right at the end of the judgment uh, at the end of the world there is a judgment and it says this this is a t- Chapter 20, verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, the earth and the sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Uh, Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Here we go, verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead who were in in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And so it seems as though Hades is a holding place for the unrighteous who have died, who are awaiting judgment that will occur in Revelation 20. And this is where the rich man finds himself. It is a sobering reality that Jesus talks about. He's in torment. He's in agony. And he looks across and he squints as he says, is that Lazarus over there? You can barely believe it. The poor, crippled beggar from outside his gate is now with the father of the Jews. Their destinies have completely switched. The rich man is suffering from judgment while Lazarus is enjoying the blessing at Abraham's side. This leads to two requests... Both of these requests are going to be made by the rich man in Hades. The first request is in verse 24. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Notice the rich man hasn't changed one bit he still sees Lazarus as beneath him, as his lackey, as someone to serve him. And ironically, just as Lazarus wanted the smallest of scraps from the rich man's table, now the rich man desires the smallest drip of water from Lazarus's finger. And there is a horrific play on words here. As just as the hounds licked the sores of Lazarus in life, now the flames lick the rich man in the afterlife. The difference now is that there is no hope of him reversing his fortune. He sealed his own fate by his actions in this life. And so Abraham responds accordingly in verse 25. Abraham said, child. Notice the connection between Abraham and this Jew. He calls him Father Abraham. Abraham responds, child, there is a physical descendant connection between these two but it still was not enough child remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish now stop here for a second because this is such an important verse to understand clearly in its context because if we don't what you end up with here is that rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven and that's not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what Christianity teaches. And this is why Lazarus is named. Lazarus is the abbreviated version of the Hebrew name Eleazar. And Eleazar means God is my helper. God is my helper. And when you look at the parable, Lazarus doesn't say or do anything. He is completely reliant on God being his helper for salvation. The rich man, on the other hand, seems to be fiercely independent and wealth keeps him from perceiving his need of mercy from God in this life. So when Abraham says that in your life you received good things and now you're in anguish and he received his bad things and now he's being comforted, what does he mean by that? He's saying for those who are saved, the worst that you will experience will be in this life. It's as bad as it will get. And from death onwards, only comfort. And for those who are lost, who haven't trusted in Christ for their salvation, they will experience some good things in this life and that will be as good as it will get. And after death, there will be torment and unalterable consequences. Lazarus experienced bad things, trusted in God, and now it's time, that time is over. Only good things are to come. Rich man experienced good things in his life, wasn't saved. Now he only experienced bad things from that point on. Abraham goes on, and besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm which has been Fixed. In order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Abraham tells a rich man the scenario is permanent. There's a great chasm that's been fixed between us. A verb is in the passive. Somebody had acted upon Sheol and made it so there was a great chasm between. God has set up the afterlife in such a way that the righteous and the unrighteous no longer mix. And no one can cross from one side to the other. The image is sobering. It's disturbing. And it is to be taken seriously. And it is, the respo- it is to reinforce that the response that we have in this life is decisive for where we reside in the next. You know, it's interesting. The rich man never asks to come over. He never asks to come over to Abraham. Rather, he just wants Lazarus to come and serve him. He doesn't say, I'd like to come over there. He doesn't want to. Or at least the parable doesn't indicate that he wants to actually go over there. He just wants Lazarus to come and bring him some relief. But even if he did, the chasm is fixed. The time for decision has finished. And it finished at his earthly death. Request one made, request one denied. There's a second request from the rich man in verse 27. He said, I beg you, Father, to send send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham asks him to send Lazarus, to his brothers so they will have a chance to respond knowing now that his fate is sealed he looks to those who still have a chance effectively saying don't let them make the same mistake that i did warn them that how i lived my life ends in disaster there's a uh, private christian school over in america and uh, at the end of every year they would put out a yearbook. And um, they would always put in the graduating class, uh, grade 12, and they'd have pictures of each person. And under that, they'd have a little bit of a a blurb of kind of, you know, what was their favorite memory from school? And what are they doing next year? Are they heading off to college? Where are they going? Um, And because it was a Christian school, they would put their favorite Bible verse and uh, there was one boy who was graduating, and he was the oldest of quite a few boys in his family. And he did not have a good time at this school. He was a rat bag, he was a troublemaker, and uh, he, he just got into a lot of trouble. He spent a lot of time in detention. He was pretty harmless, but he was definitely a, a rat bag and spent a lot of time in detention. And so when it came to the yearbook and to put those details down, he thought he'd have one last crack at the school. And for his favorite verse... He put down Luke 16, 27 and 28. Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. <laughs> the rich man wants Abraham to send Lazarus to his family to tell them, of where he has ended up, so they will not make the same mistake. And Abraham responds in verse 29 and says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. What does he mean by this? Well, he's talking about the Old Testament. And what does the Old Testament point towards? Points towards the Messiah who was to come. It was about Jesus. And when he says, let them hear them, This isn't a friendly suggestion. This is an imperative in the Greek. It's a command. You must hear the prophets and Moses who point to Jesus Christ. If they can't figure it out from the Old Testament, the Jews who were zealous for it, neither will they see him if he's right in front of them, just as Jesus is as he tells this parable. And he said, verse 30, No, Father Abraham, but if somebody goes from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, This is Abraham. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if somebody should rise from the dead. And you can only see that Jesus... Is quite prophetic here in his anticipation of his death and his resurrection and the Jews and the Jewish leaders who rejected it. That's exactly what happens as you go through the rest of the book of Luke. Jesus raises from the dead the Jewish leaders, reject it, they want to squash it. As you get to Acts, written by the same author, what happens? Uh, uh, Peter and John preach to the Jewish leaders. They put them in prison. They tell them to stop preaching in this name. They reject the sign of resurrection. Stephen comes along. What does he preach about? Old Testament, looking for the fulfillment of Messiah, found in Jesus, who you murdered, Jews, and is now resurrected. And what do they do? They stone him. Even if somebody should rise from the dead... They will not be convinced. And that's the end of the parable. So we've gone through the parable. You've looked at the details. But what is the point? What is it saying? What does he mean? By telling this, what does he what does he want? Now, well, just like all parables, you have to look at the context of where this parable is found. If you don't look at the context, you'll miss the meaning. You see, between where we finished last week and where we, fin- and where we started this week, there is four verses. Four verses that seemingly have something to do with it and some have seemingly have nothing to do with it. Look at verse 14, up a little bit from where we started. The Pharisees were lovers of money. They heard all these things and they ridiculed him. The Pharisees were lovers of money. And they heard all the things that Jesus said and what he spoke and what he was telling them and they ridiculed him. It literally means to turn your nose up at somebody. Strong contempt. Verse 15, and he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The Pharisee used their wealth to justify themselves before others essentially believing and communicating that their wealth was a sign of God's blessing and acceptance of them. And so, Jesus is going to tell them a story of the richest man that they could think of, the most wealthy and prominent and prestigious person, and show them that, in fact, he had no right to salvation despite his wealth. That it wasn't his wealth or his acceptance by others that determined his eternal salvation. And Jesus says to them that what is exalted above me, uh, by men is an abomination in the sight of God. Simply, what God thinks about things is far more exceedingly important than what people think about things. And his judgment and his determination trumps anybody else's. And if the pursuit of wealth and possessions and prestige is the goal of your life, rather than relationship with God, it is an abomination in His sight. Nothing wrong with money. Nothing wrong with possessions. Nothing wrong with prestige. But if it is the goal of your life, and you go after that, above relationship with God, It is a stench in the nostrils of God. He goes on in verse 16, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than one one dot of the law to become void. What is he talking about? Well, the first part 's fairly straightforward. The law and the prophets were until John, everything in the Old Testament anticipated Messiah, which is Jesus, and then John the Baptist was the forerunner. He came along and he preached the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is near, and he was the only prophet that actually saw Jesus in real life, and so he 's kind of got a foot in both camps and from that point on the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and John preached it and Jesus preached it about himself and in Matthew 10 he sent out the disciples to go and preach that the kingdom of heaven is near okay so that that part's fairly straightforward and then it says and everyone forces his way into it what does he mean by that the forces verb here is biadzo. Now, I'm going to put some of you to sleep. There's that room at the back if you need it. Let me just go into some, some Greek grammar really quick to help you understand what's going on here. If you fall asleep, I'll tell you when you can wake up in a couple of minutes. Beadzo, it's a verb. In Greek, the way that you understand what the, the, the uh, word in the sentence is doing is you look at the ending of the word. And in this verb, it has an ending that could be in two voices. It could be a middle voice or it could be a passive voice. A passive is when somebody acts upon uh, something else, right? So you could technically translate it um, as it is being forced upon them, right? That's one way you could take it as a passive, but it could also be taken as a middle. A middle voice is when the uh, subject is doing the action for themselves, for their benefit, So if it was something else like, uh, I threw the ball. If it was in the middle, I I threw the ball to myself. And here we have in the translation a, a middle sense where it says that they are forcing their way into it themselves. And I think that's the way that you take it because the Pharisees are trying to force their way into the kingdom based off their wealth and their popularity, and their their earthly life, and the things that they have accumulated, and the prestige that they have in front of the people. And they are forcing their way in, at least attempting to. Okay, you can wake up now if you went to sleep. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. What's he saying? You can force all you like. You can decide in your own mind how things will go, but the Word of God will stand. It is inviolable. It will remain true. Regardless of what other religions may claim or teach, regardless of what people say about it, regardless of what people think about it, whether you ignore it, whether you change it yourself, the Word of God will stand. It will be true. People may change it, abandon it, reject it, distort it, but it will not change what God has decided. And if there is ever a command of God that the Pharisees took and didn't like, and because their hearts were far from Him, changed it to suit their own needs probably the most prolific and and best example of them doing this was marriage where god commanded man and woman to be together one flesh for their life it was the first institution in genesis that he that he makes between adam and eve By the time we get to Deuteronomy, Moses has given them freedom to divorce based on their hard-heartedness. Now, Scripture talks about reasons for divorce. But as we get to Jesus' time, the Pharisees are allowing divorce for anything that a man may find unpleasant about his wife. And we actually have records that some of these things are things like that they burnt the cooking, which would never be a problem in our household because my wife is a wonderful cook and everything she serves up is delicious. You could also divorce your wife if if you think that she was unattractive now. And the Pharisees actually did this to suit their own hearts and desires. And so, Jesus in verse 18 says this, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. He says, you can change the words. You can justify yourselves, Pharisees, to your own criteria, but it does not change what God meant, what God commanded. It stays the same. His word does not change. And then he tells the parable. So with that context in mind, and the parable being told, what does it mean? There is only one way to salvation, and it comes through the man telling the parable, Jesus Christ. It cannot be bought. It cannot be self-determined. It cannot be earned. You cannot justify yourself entry into the kingdom, into eternal life. Those who fail to trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation and for the forgiveness of their sins will spend the rest of their life away from God in regret. And on our own terms and our own merits... We would never be saved. There would be no salvation. And we would be lost if it wasn't for the hope that we find in the named character, Lazarus. God is our helper. Jesus came to seek and save the lost but His offer was through Him and Him only. And there is no other way to salvation. God did not leave us lost. He came as our helper. And we don't have to say or do anything to merit that other than trust in the sacrifice that He provided. So what does this mean for us today? Don't spend your life pursuing wealth or the love of man or the prestige of position at the expense of relationship with God. We can have relationship with God through the Father, through Jesus Christ, His Son, who loves you and He died for you. That you may never have to go to that place of torment. That we might say, God is our helper. And put our trust and our faith in Him. That is the point of the parable. You might like to put down 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Or you might like to write Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not of the result of works, so that no one may boast. God is our helper. Would you pray with me, Father? Thank you for this this word this morning. This truth, and uh, it's not easy at times on one side, and yet it is wonderful on the other, and. Uh, Jesus taught it. Jesus taught this parable and so we want to take it seriously. So Father, I pray if there's anyone out there who hasn't trusted in Christ, that they would come to trust Him this morning for the forgiveness of their sins. And for those of us who have, God, we're grateful. We are thankful for the way that You did not leave us lost. You did not abandon us without hope. But you came and you offered eternal life. And Jesus, in his kindness and his mercy and his grace, made that possible by laying himself down. And so we thank you for that. We praise you for that. You are the only one worthy of our praise and our adoration and our worship. Even though we find it in other things and we look for it in other things, You are the only one where it should be rightly given. So help us this morning to worship You as number one in our lives, first and foremost, regardless of the circumstances of our life. We put you first and we say, you are our God and we love you. Thank you for salvation. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.